God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested from his work of creation. He created the first man, Adam, and then he created the first woman, Eve. God also created all the animals. The scripture says that when God finished his work of creation, that the testimony is, is that it was very good. I can't really imagine what God's original creation work looked like before sin entered into the world. Can't really imagine that the animal world was perfect, that there was a perfect vertical relationship between God and man, and that there was a perfect horizontal relationship between man and others. Everything was absolutely perfect and beautiful, so much so that the scripture says that God himself viewed it as very, very good. That's the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. But things change in Genesis 3. We change from the creation of the world to the fall of man. Adam's disobedience to God was responsible for sin entering into the world. And not only sin entering into the world, but also death through sin. Sin messed up God's creation. It marred God's creation. It, it devastated the vertical relationship between God and man. It, it ruined the relationship, the horizontal relationship between man and others. And even the animal world was affected by sin. And by the time we get to Genesis 6, things become so bad that God is fed up with man. He looks at what man has produced in his creation and decides to judge all of creation with a universal flood. But despite the universal flood, God spared a family, and that family multiplied, and sin continued to be a part of the world. And so here we are today. We can look around us and we see the devastation and ruin that sin has caused. How it's ruined lives. How it's destroyed marriages. How it's broken up families. Sin is powerful. Sin is devastating. And on top of that, we as Christians, even though we are freed from sin, in the sense of the power of sin, we still wrestle with the presence of sin. So we're tempted day in and day out to do that which dishonors and displeases God. So we live in a messed up world, in a world marred by, 
a sin. And, and all you need to do is remind yourself by listening to the news or watching the news on TV. It reminds us of the evil, the wickedness, the bad that exists. But in the midst of a dark world, there is a ray of sunshine in John's message that God is light. God is light. And if you understand that, and if you grasp that, that's a game changer, so to speak. The biblical truth that God is light and that in him there is no darkness at all holds promise uh, in a world devastated by sin. There is one whom sin did not affect or change. That's God. There, there is one who is still holy, who is still pure, who is still righteous, and despite the presence of sin in the world, it not, has not devastated or affected God. Because God is light, that marvelous truth has ramifications for our relationship with God. It has ramifications for our concept and our perspective on sin. A person can say that they have fellowship with God, yet if they walk in the darkness, John says that claim is a bogus claim. It's a false claim. The way you determine that you have a relationship with God, the way it manifests itself, is that you walk in the light as God himself is in the light. And that was our first sermon on this passage. Walking in the light also reflects the fact of who God is. But in the second sermon, we focused in on sin. And in that sermon, we realize the false claim of saying that we're not sinful. We are a sinful people, even though we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now, people deny that they are sinful, but the Word of God tells us that we are. And we affirm, we agree that we are sinful. And, and the way that we affirm that, the way that we agree upon that, is that we confess and forsake our sins. If confession of sin is not a part of your life, if that's a rarity, if that's an odd thing for you to do, then in essence what you're saying is you're not sinful. You're saying that you don't need the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the genuine believer understands that they have rebelled against God, that they have sinned against God in their thoughts, with their words, and also with their deeds. And as a result of that, the genuine believer confesses, says the same thing about his or her sin as God does and forsakes their sin. And the wonderful thing is, it's not just because you do that that you are forgiven. Instead, 
God steps in. The God who is faithful, the God who is righteous, he forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That was the second son. This morning we come to our last look at 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. And we want to see the ramifications of the truth that God is like when it comes to sinful actions. And that's pointed out to us in the last verse of chapter 1, verse 10, and also in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. We learn about the ramifications or the implications that God is light through these different claims that John presents in verse 6, 8, and 10. And each claim begins the same way. It says, if we say. And John doesn't matter who it is. If a person makes the claim, then he gives an evaluation. And so in verse 6, the person says, if we say we have fellowship with God, our relationship with God, John evaluates that. And in verse 8, if a person says, if we say we have no sin, John evaluates that. But now we come to verse 10, and once again, John presents us with a claim. If we say that we have not sinned. And this claim might sound just like the one in verse 8. But verse 8 says the person is denying their sinfulness. That they have a sin nature or principle. That they're born into this world as a sinner. But verse 10, verse 10 focuses in on personal actions of sin. The person is saying, we have not sinned, or I have not sinned. They're looking at something in the past, and they're denying that what they did in the past is rebellion against God, it's putting their fists in the face of God, it's missing the mark that God has for them, and they're saying, I have not done that, and so there are no consequences of that in the present. The person, in essence, is saying, my past has not been checkered by personal acts of sin. I have not personally sinned against God in thought, in word, or even in deed. Here's a person rejecting the idea of sinful actions. Here's a person who lives life before God and before others and says, you can look at my particular past, and in my particular past, there are not moments or occasions when I have done anything against God and his word. What do you do with such a claim? How do you respond to someone who says, I haven't done sinful actions? And they might do it cleverly. They might rename the sin so that it's acceptable to others. 
So I, I didn't commit fornication. I didn't commit adultery. We just made love. I, I, I didn't lie. I did not distort the truth. I just kind of stretched it a little bit. And so we're clever at renaming sin. We're clever at disguising sin. And John is saying that if a person, if there is a human being, and particularly he's saying to his readers, if you say that you have no sin, that you have not sinned, if you have not committed personal acts of sin, John said, this is my assessment. This is what I would tell you. And that's what he says in verse 10 at the very end. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar. And his word, God's word, is not in us. So John is not pulling any punches at all. He says that the person who denies personal sinful acts in the past, having no results or consequences for today, that that person has made Almighty God into a liar. That person has taken the God who is light and made him the God who is dark and guilty of lying. That he's telling a big, fat lie. God is. The, the person who says, I have not committed personal acts of sin in my mind, with my words, or by my deeds, that person has the audacity to say that the God who is faithful in forgiving sin, that God is not faithful. He is a liar. That person with their claim is saying that the God who cannot lie, according to Titus chapter 1 verse 2, I hope you understand that, that God cannot lie, but this person with their claim is saying God can lie. And in fact, God has lied. It's a monstrosity to, to claim that you and I have not committed personal sins, that we have not done sinful acts and deeds. When you do such a thing, the result, John says, is that you make the, the God of truth a liar. And not only that, John goes on to say God's word. The, the word of truth is not in the individual who makes such a claim. So that's the real problem. It's not that truth is not in God. Truth is not in that person. So, so how do we do that? How do we make God a liar? And I do hope you understand that it's impossible to do that. But John is saying that in essence, that's what you're doing by your claim. And the reason why he says you're doing that is because God has gone on record in his word that we do sinful deeds. That's the testimony of Scripture. Scripture says 
in 1 Kings 8.46, there is no man, our woman, our boy, our girl, who does not sin. No man. If that is not enough for you, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 provides further proof. There is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Let that register with you and with me. The God of heaven and earth has gone on record. He has revealed to us that individual sin. There, there's no one who is excluded from that. And we can add Paul's words in Romans 3.23 that we use oftentimes. For all have what? Sin. All have. And fallen short of the glory of God. To deny that you or for me to deny that I have not committed personal acts of sin is to proclaim a monstrous lie about God, that he is a liar and that he was not telling the truth in his word. That's John's assessment. And John understands and John knows that you and I can't change the character of God. We can't make God into something that he is not. We can't make God a liar because it is his nature, it is his character that he can not lie. Now, God can do all things but there are a few things he can't do. And one of the things he can't do is lie. So, so, so it is impossible for you. It is impossible for me to change the nature and the character of God. But we can misrepresent his character and his nature. Uh, we can't make it, make God into a liar. But we can proclaim to others by our life and by our words that God is a liar. By our actions, we can misrepresent God. And, and sometimes when you look at our actions, we're, we're telling people God is unholy. That God is unclean. <laughs> that, that God is filled with words that defile, etc. by our actions. We lie against God. And I wonder, what is your life? What do your lips say about the character and the nature of God? Are you representing Him faithfully? Are you letting your light shine are you walking in the light as he is in the light? Or when people look at your life, do they get a distorted view of God, of Jesus Christ, and of the gospel? 
And that's what the church, unfortunately, has been guilty of. Not that the church is perfect people, but, but neither is the church people who live and walk in the darkness. That's not the church. And John says, if that's what you're doing, if you can roll into church with sin in your life and you don't confess it, you don't repent from it, you still do it, and, and, and it's like water dropping on you. It's no big deal. Then something is wrong. And some of us need to ask God to clean up our lives because we are spreading lies about him. We are making his character into something that it is not. And one clear-cut example of that is when you deny personal, sinful actions. When you do that, you make God a liar. You make him into something supposedly that he is not. The Apostle John turns from the rejection of sinful actions to the remedy for them in verses 1 and 2. I realize we're starting a new chapter, and I would say that this is an unfortunate chapter break in our Bibles. You do know that verses and chapters were not given to us by God. They are the result of human beings. And so sometimes when you come to a new chapter, like chapter 2, you might think that John is talking about something new. And I just want to let you know that what he says in verses 1 and 2 goes with what he has just said about those individuals who have rejected in their life sinful actions. What John says in these two verses relates back to what he has said in verse 10. And if I had my way, and I don't have my way, I would just put these as verse 11 and verse 12 of chapter 1. But I don't want you to think I'm a heretic or anything like that, so we'll just keep them in chapter 2 as verses 1 and 2. But what these two verses do is correct the false claim that was made in verse 10. And John does that with each claim. When a person claims to have fellowship with God yet walks in darkness, John corrects that. When a person says that they have no sin, John corrects that. Now here's a person who says, I don't do sinful action. John corrects that. But before we see that correction, John does something a little bit different. He, 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 he has a tender address for his readers. He begins chapter 2, verse 1 by saying, My little children. My little children. And he is tenderly, affectionately sharing his heart with his readers. He calls them children because like him, they're part of the family of God. John is in the part in the family of God. The readers are in the family of God. But even though they're all in the family of God, it doesn't mean they have the same roles. 
John sees these readers as his children, his spiritual children. And and it implies that he has some kind of relationship, a spiritual parental relationship with them. He doesn't just come out and say, but in essence, he's saying, I'm your spiritual father. And you're my spiritual children. John is an old man now. It's been some 60 years since Jesus Christ has died on the cross and been buried and raised from the dead. And now here is John in the latter years of his life as he's getting ready to go home to be with the Lord. He addresses these readers tenderly, affectionately, lovingly, and calls them my little dear children. And he's going to do that several more times in this letter. But even though he's their spiritual father, he he wants them to realize that he has a certain desire for each of them. He says, my little children, I write these things. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Did you hear that? Here is their pastor. Here is their spiritual father. Here is the one who has spiritual influence in their life. And he said, I'm writing these things. What things? The things that I've just spelled out in verses 5 through 10 of chapter 1, that God is light and the ramifications for that. And John is saying that I'm writing these things. My, my purpose, my goal is that you might not sin even once. John says, my heart's desire for you as the people of God, as my little children, as those who are part of the family of God, I don't want you ever, ever, ever to have anything at all to do with sin. And my friends, that's the heart of a real pastor. If a pastor, if the leaders don't care that people sin, then shame, shame, shame on such a pastor. John says, I don't want you sinning even one time. You might think it's minor. You might think it's big. But John says, I don't want you as a Christian to sin at all. And that really should be your desire for yourself. From this moment on, you should have a desire that you don't sin at all. You shouldn't feel comfortable with sin. You shouldn't have medicated your your, your, your sins so that you become insensitive to them. You shouldn't blow up at people and curse them out and it doesn't faze you. You shouldn't be sleeping around and it doesn't bother you. Your attitude towards sin and John's attitude, I don't want you to sin at all because why? He knows that sin devastates. He knows that sin ruins lives. Look around us and see what sin has done to our world. 
And look at what sin has done to you and to me. How could we have the desire, the, the want to want to sin even once? Now, John writes this, knowing that Christians are to confess their sins. John writes this, knowing that Christians are sinful. But that doesn't change his heart, his desire. Don't you dare read verses 5 through 10 and walk away from them and think, well, all I got to do is confess my sins and everything is okay. I've heard ludicrous thinking like that. I have heard people say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. God will forgive me. That's a horrendous thought. That is a wicked view of sin. John said, I don't want you to sin at all. One sin put Jesus Christ on the cross. Why would you want to do that with your thoughts, with your words, with your actions? That John is a realist. So he, he understands the world that we live in. He understands temptation to sin. And so he said, if anyone sins. If anyone sins. After saying, I don't want you to sin, he presents the possibility, the reality that someone might sin. Not only might sin, will sin. But don't have to sin. God has given us everything that we need so we don't have to sin. But John says, if anyone sins, the thing is that you don't reject your sinful deeds. You don't uh, refuse to acknowledge them. Instead, when you sin, you need to know that there is a remedy. There is a remedy for sinful actions. That's good news. I don't know about you, but I know I have sinned. I know I have committed acts of sin. And it's good to know. It is wonderful to know that there is a remedy for sinful actions. And some of you especially need to hear that. But, but the genuine Christian understand that when he or she sin, that God has provided a solution for personal sinful actions. When a sin, Christian sins, a genuine Christian sins, John wants the Christian to know that Jesus is the paraclete. And I'll explain what that term means in just a moment. But, but notice what he says at the end of verse 1, of chapter 2. If anyone sins, he says, we have an advocate. Or we have a paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When I sin, I am accountable to God. I have rebelled against the God who is light. I've offended the God who is holy. And I am before God with my sin. 
But the good news is that as I am before God in my sin, with my sin, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus, at that moment in time, is in a face-to-face relationship with God, the Father, the eternal Son of God, who was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. And when that took place, he left heaven's glory and made the commitment to come to this earth. But he was born. He lived. He died. He was buried. He was raised. And he ascended back to heaven. And scripture tells us that he's seated right now at the right hand of God. The place of privilege, the place of power. When I sin, I'm accountable before God. And and my advocate, my my helper, is face to face with God seated at his right hand. And his name is Jesus. Because he saves his people from sins. He's the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. He is the righteous one. Meaning that he is upright and perfect and there is no sin at all. That's the kind of lawyer, that's the kind of advocate, that's the kind of helper you want when you sin against God. Because you and I have nothing at all to offer God when we sin. We have nothing. But John is saying, you possess, you have, when you sin, genuine believer, you have an advocate. I like the term paraclete. It's not really an English word, but it's a translation of the term that John is using. And what's interesting is John is the only one who uses this term paraclete, our advocate. It's only found in his writings. This is the only time that it's used in reference to Jesus. Normally, Jesus uses it in reference to the Holy Spirit. In that upper room discourse in John 13 through 17, when Jesus told his disciples, I'm leaving. And what he meant, that he's going to the cross, he's going to be raised from the dead, and he was going to ascend back to the Father. But he says, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you another paraclete. In essence, Jesus was saying, I've been your paraclete. And paraclete really just literally means one who is called alongside to help. And Jesus said, I've been called alongside of you to help. I've been there with you, disciples, through thick and thin. You followed me. You've been with me. You've seen my uh, miracles. You heard my words. But, but I'm leaving. And you can't go with me. But, but I'm going to do the next best thing. And really something even better. That is, I'm going to send you another, just like me, comforter, our paraclete, our helper. That's who the Holy Spirit is in the Christian's life. He's a helper. And now John is saying that Jesus is our advocate. That he's our paraclete. He's our sponsor. He's our helper. 
He's our defender when I personally sin. That's good. That, that's great. To, to know that there is someone pleading my cause. And he pleads on the basis of the fact that he is righteous. The, the remedy for sinful deeds, my friend, is Jesus is our paraclete. He's our helper. He's our sp sponsor. He's our advocate. He's the one who ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. Jesus is not simply sitting at the right hand of God. He's interceding for you and he's interceding for me. So if anyone sins, they have Jesus as their paraclete, helper. But what's also great about this is that the paraclete, the helper, the advocate, is also the one who is the propitiation for our sins. And I know we don't use that word often. And I think I've mentioned it's the word that preachers don't really like because you start saying propitiation, all kind of stuff starts coming out of your mouth. It's not one of those, I'm glad you guys are a few rows back, but propitiation, it's a word that is meaningful and significant. Some translations point out that Jesus Christ is our atoning sacrifice for sin. Maybe that's more palatable. Maybe that helps you more. To understand that your paraclete is also the one who was the sacrifice for your sins. The whole idea of propitiation means that God is holy and His holiness must be satisfied. And the death of Christ on Calvary's cross satisfy the righteous demands of holy God. John will talk about Jesus as our propitiation later on in chapter 4, verse 10. But here, he just reminds his readers who Jesus is. Yes, he's Christ. Yes, he's the righteous one. But he and he alone is the propitiation for our sins. For, for the person who is before God, who recognizes that they have sinned against God, who has committed personal deeds and acts of sin. Jesus, who is face to face with the Father, who has come alongside of us to help us, is also the satisfaction, the atoning Sacrifice on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And that's the only way and the only reason that God can step in when we confess our sins, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's because, as the songwriters say, 
Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. He doesn't just do that at salvation, at the moment of salvation. He does that throughout our life. And that's why John talks about how Jesus' blood continually cleanses us from sin. The songwriter also said, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And there, sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for my sins when I stand before holy God as a result of having sinned. I can come before him, not in my own merit, not in my own strength, but knowing that I have a paraclete, an advocate, a helper, a sponsor who's interceding on my behalf. And not only interceding on my behalf, but one who has paid the penalty for my sins so that I can be forgiven and can be cleansed. John ends verse 2 by saying he's not just the propitiation for my sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. This statement has resulted in different viewpoints. My understanding of this scripture, this phrase, my conviction is that Jesus Christ is not saying that he is the propitiation for all kinds of people, red and yellow, black and white, but he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. That does not mean that everyone is saved. But it does mean that everyone is savable. So John is not denying that a person must repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus in order to be saved. John is not denying that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. So the one who is my paraclete is also the propitiation for my sins. God is light is a marvelous revelation. And this revelation that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, that there is no darkness in him at all, has ramifications for sinful deeds and actions. For genuine Christians, for genuine believers, there is no rejection of sinful actions and deeds. There is no claim coming out of the mouth of a genuine believer that they have not sinned. That's ludicrous in light of God's word. That's ludicrous in light of your own reflection on yourself. To, to make such a claim and to believe it would be to make God into a liar. 
And God has gone on record that we commit deeds and acts of sin, whether in thought, whether in word, whether in deed. The genuine Christian, instead of rejecting the idea of sinful deed, the genuine Christian understands there is a remedy for sinful deeds. That Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. That Jesus Christ is our paraclete. That because of him, I can be forgiven of my personal deeds of sin. That I can come to him with confidence and confess my sin and forsake my sin. Knowing that God steps in to and shows himself faithful and reliable and dependable, and he forgives me and cleanses me from all my sin. You and I must have a heart attitude that we don't want to sin. That should be our mindset. But if we do sin, we need to keep in mind that Jesus is our advocate and that our advocate is the one who died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. Praise God that there's a remedy, that there's a solution for personal, sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you will Help us to grasp and fully understand what it means that you are light and that no darkness is in you at all. May that truth shed light on what it means to have a relationship with you. And may it also shed light on how we view sin. Father, we are sinful, and we do commit acts of sin. But thank you that even though as a Christian, when I commit an act of sin, that I have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And thank you that not only is he an advocate, but he's the propitiation for my sins. He's the one who sacrificed his life on the cross to satisfy your holy and righteous demands regarding sin so that you can step in to our lives when we confess our sins and forsake them, that we can experience forgiveness of sins in cleansing from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful, marvelous thought it is, Father, for us to know that our sins are not only forgiven at salvation, but our sins as we walk with you can be forgiven. And I pray for those under the sound of my voice who are struggling with sin, and can't imagine at all that you would forgive a particular sin. 
I pray that you'll give them eyes to see clearly who the Lord Jesus Christ is and, and what he has done. And that they would understand that there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help them, Father, to confess their sins and to forsake them. Help us not to take sin lightly. But when we sin, may it break us. May it devastate us. But not to the point of despair where we think there's nothing that can be done. But instead, help us to remember who Jesus Christ is and what he has done and what he does for us as your children. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.